So we're continuing our study in the book of Romans. And so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles or your Bible app to chapter 3 of this life-changing book. In the first part of Romans, the Apostle Paul spells out the gospel of how to become a friend of God. The gospel has both good news and bad news. And the bad news is, is that we all have a sin problem, which at its core is pride. In other words, we're all, excuse me, we're all inclined to live our lives independent of God, to do what we want to do. Now, Paul wants us to understand that sin is a serious problem because left to ourselves, we face God's wrath and God's judgment. In the first two chapters, Paul explains that God's wrath is directed not only at the rebellious, but also at the respectable and the religious. His concern is that people not downplay the seriousness of sin and are aware that no amount of good behavior or religious activity can fix our sin problem and help us escape the wrath of God. Now, my sense is that many people today struggle believing in a God who is wrathful. And yet, as I explained earlier in this series, God's wrath is really an expression of his love. I mean, think of someone that you love, a child, a parent, uh, a spouse, or a good friend. The more you love that person, the more you will hate, the more angry you will be at anything or anyone um, who threatens the person you love. In fact, because you love them, you will even be upset if they're hurting themselves. Well, in the same way, because he loves us, God's wrath, his anger, his justice is directed towards sin in whatever expression it may find itself. It's directed toward anything we do that hurts ourselves or that hurts others. So let's keep that in mind when we talk about God's wrath and God's judgment today. It's really an expression of his love for us. Which brings us to chapter 3, where some of the religious people from chapter 2 aren't happy with what Paul is saying, and so they continue to pepper him with questions. And so Paul devotes the first half of chapter 3 to responding to their questions. Look at verse 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Someone says, okay, Paul. So you say that nothing external makes you a believer. Not good behavior, not good works, not religious devotion, or rituals like circumcision. So then what advantage is there to being a Jew? In our day, we could say, if baptism or communion or church membership or even church attendance, though important, but in themselves do not make us acceptable to God, then what advantage is there to being a Christian? What advantage is there to being part of the church? Well, in verse 2, Paul begins to answer that, saying there are significant advantages to being a faithful believer. For one, he writes, believers have been entrusted with the words of God. 
The Jews were given the Old Testament revelation of God. And as Christians, we've been given God's entire written revelation in the Old and the New Testament. And this is very significant because we aren't left guessing what God is like. We aren't left guessing how we can have a relationship with God and what his expectations are for us. Furthermore, God's word also teaches us that uh, what we are like. The Bible explains the real me to me. It tells me where I came from. Tells me why I'm here. It tells me where I'm going when I die and also how to be ready to meet my creator. It reminds me what will really matter in the end and it gives focus and purpose to my life. The Bible also gives a lot of wisdom for living. And when we follow God's principles and precepts for morality, for relationships, for marriage, family, and work life, just to name a few, we will experience a richer and a more meaningful life than those who are left on their own to figure out what's important in life, what's going to matter most in life, and how to live this life to the full. But here's the thing. If we believe that, like the religious did, that religious activity or good behavior um, is what makes us acceptable to God, then we're being deceived. And we're no better off. There, we have no advantage, says Paul, over those who just flat out reject God or replace God with counterfeit idols. Paul reinforces this in verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. In other words, he's saying the rebellious, the respectable, the religious are all trusting in the wrong things. And therefore, even though they may believe otherwise, the wrath of God is still on them. Look at verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Now, in verses 10 to 17, Paul gets even more specific. He essentially says, do you want more proof that we're all sinners? Well, let's talk about your speech. Have you ever slandered or gossiped about someone? Or let's talk about your integrity. Have you ever cheated on your income tax or your expense account? Ever lie about why you are late in order to save face? Like a lawyer in a court of law, Paul addresses every argument until they have no more arguments or excuses and are silent. In verse 19, Paul indicates that on judgment day, the truth of God will be so clear that every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. You see, in Paul's day, the courts were conducted in public. An accused person was allowed to defend themselves. But when it became clear to the judge that the person was just blowing smoke or hot air, the judge would nod to a court official who would approach the person 
and say, that's it. Stop talking. Be quiet and sit down. The judge is going to give his verdict now. You know, this takes me back about 30 years to the time a law was passed requiring everyone to wear a seatbelt while driving a car. Remember that assault on our freedom? It's a long time ago. Now, some of you may remember me telling this story a couple of times over the last 30 years, but it really illustrates the imagery that Paul paints here in this chapter. You see, I wasn't against the seatbelt legislation. The evidence for wearing them was strong. It made sense. My problem was getting in the habit of actually putting on my seatbelt before I drove away. Well, one day I needed to pick up something at a nearby store, and two of our boys wanted to go along for the ride. Two blocks later, I, I stopped at a red light, and I noticed through the rear mirror flashing red lights of a police cruiser. Not a good thing. It was then I noticed that I forgot to strap in my boys. In fact, one of them was leaning forward, resting his hands on the dash and licking the inside of the front windshield, <laughs> while the other was standing in the back, you know, one hand on each of the bucket seats. When the boys heard me mutter, oh no, and then they saw the flashing lights, I mean, they immediately sat down and tried to put on their seatbelts. When I rolled down my window to talk to the officer, at that exact moment, Josh, who was in the back seat and just a bit upset, he cried out and said, Dad, I can't get this seatbelt on. <laughs> the officer smiled at me and said, I don't suppose I need to tell you why I pulled you over. I sheepishly said, no, sir. There was no use arguing. I had nothing to say. I, know I, was, I knew I was guilty, and I was without excuse. He said, I'll be right back, and I knew it wouldn't be with a Christmas present either. <laughs> to my surprise, the officer returned only a few seconds later, and he said, well, sir, today is your lucky day. You're free to go, because you see, I just locked myself out of my car. Now, that is a miracle of grace, let me tell you. Indeed. But here's my point. Paul says there's a day coming when people are going to stand in God's holy courtroom. And some of them will come with prepared speeches, convinced that they are innocent. They will present a list of arguments in their defense. But in the end, he writes, every mouth will be silenced. And the whole world held accountable to God. The rebellious person, the respectable person, the religious person will be out of arguments. They'll be without excuse. All arguments will cease, total silence. For you see, in that moment, we will see ourselves no longer in terms of how we compare with others, but how we measure up to the perfect holiness of God and that we fall short. Far short. Romans 3.10 reinforces this truth, saying there is no one righteous, not even one. But now, says Paul, but now, says Paul, God has made a way. Beginning in verse 21, Paul finally gets to the good news of the gospel. 
writing one of the most powerful, life-changing paragraphs in all of the scriptures. And if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand and join me in reading it right now. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. You may be seated. Now in this passage that we just read together, we're essentially given five pictures, as it were. Each of them taken from a little bit of a different angle, from a little bit of a different perspective, all of which together provide us with a greater and a more complete understanding of how God made a way for us through Christ and the cross to be saved, not just from our sins, but from the wrath of God, and also how we can become a friend of God. The first picture is this, salvation is from God. Look at verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Notice that salvation is initiated by God. God has made a way. You say, now wait a minute, pastor. I mean, a moment ago you said that we need to be saved from the wrath of God, and now you're telling us that this same God wants to save us from his wrath? Precisely. The righteousness of God means two things. First, it means God is right and the standard of perfection. The second is, because God is right, out of his rightness flows his love and his compassion. And his grace, mercy, and goodness compels him to make a way for his justice to be satisfied on the one hand, but also at the same time, to make a way for us to be made right with him. Now, I'll explain a little bit more about that in a moment. But that's picture number one. God initiated salvation. When we were silent with no more arguments and excuses, facing condemnation, God made a way. The second picture we see in this passage is this. Salvation is unearned. Verse 20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Contrary to popular opinion, the way to heaven is not found by keeping the Ten Commandments or by following the golden rule. Paul clearly articulates here that God gave us the law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, to make us aware of our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. You see, God intended the Ten Commandments to serve as a mirror. You look in the mirror, and you see, for example, that your face is dirty. Now, you don't use the mirror to wash your face. At least, I hope you don't. You need something other than the mirror to clean your face. 
In the same way, the Ten Commandments are unable to clean us or to save us. Rather, they make us aware that we have a problem and they point us to the problem solver, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians 3, verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Only a humble, heartfelt faith in Jesus Christ is what makes us acceptable to God and righteous in his sight. The third picture we see in this passage is this. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Brian Clark says, the best way to understand this is to imagine that you're standing before holy God and you are wearing your sin like a robe. The robe is tattered, torn, dirty, and stained. The robe stinks in the nostrils of a holy, righteous God. And you realize you stand there condemned without excuse because of your sin. But then, unexpectedly, God nods to a servant. And the servant comes over and takes your stinky robe off and discards it, never to be seen again. And in its place, the servant gives you a new robe, which represents the absolute righteousness of God, clothing you with the eternal righteousness of God, so that when God sees you, he no longer sees the offensive robe of your sin, but now he sees his own righteousness. And friends, God's righteousness can never be lost. It can never be stained or diminished. It, it's God's eternal righteousness that now defines you to the extent that God publicly testifies before the world, you are absolutely righteous forever. And Paul writes, this miracle of grace comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. To believe means more than intellectual assent. To believe means that you are prepared to entrust your life to that which you say you believe in. If you're a pilot, you know, it's one thing for, for, for me to say, you know, I believe that you're a good pilot. It's quite another for me to put my life in your hands and actually get in the plane and fly with you. In the same way, to truly believe in Christ or to put your faith in Christ means that you are entrusting your entire life to him. You are surrendering control of your life to him. Now, the reality is we all live by faith. We exercise faith every day. When you get on an elevator on the 10th or the 20th floor, you're exercising faith. When we sit on a chair, we're exercising faith. Every time my wife, Gwen, rides with me in a car, she exercises faith. She reminded me of that this morning. In fact, the atheist 
who believes that God does not exist does so by faith. Do you realize that? And I say that because he can't prove God doesn't exist. He believes it by faith. And to be frank, when I look at the compelling evidence for the existence of God, the atheist, atheist needs a whole lot more faith to believe there isn't a God than those of us who believe there is a God. But you see, we all exercise faith. Now, when it comes to faith, I find people typically struggle in two ways. Some people feel they don't have enough faith. Yet how does anyone ever know they have enough faith? Just remember this. It's not the amount of faith that you have, but the object that you're putting your faith in. It's not the size of your faith. It's the size of your God. The second error people make is they put their faith in their faith. They think their faith in their faith is going to save them. But the truth is, your faith doesn't save you. Christ saves you by his grace. Charles Stanley gives a wonderful example to help us understand the difference between faith and grace. He says, imagine finding yourself on a ledge outside of your apartment, five stories up. And you're there because the entire building is engulfed in flames. You're facing certain death. However, on the street below, firefighters have put up a special net in place, and they're calling on you to jump into it. After considering your options, you realize that there's only one way of escape, and that is to jump in the net that's been provided, which you proceed to do. The net holds you, the firefighters high-five you and each other, and you go on your merry way, having been spared certain death. Now think about it. What is it that saved you? Did jumping save you? Well, no. I mean, think about 9-11, as horrid as those images are. Many people jumped from the Twin Towers, and they died on the pavement below. It is the net that saved you. Well, the net represents God's grace, what God has done for you and me. You didn't earn that net. You didn't work for that net. You didn't pay for that net. No, it was offered to you as a gift. All you could do was to believe and put your trust, your faith in it by jumping into it. Jumping into the net represents the exercise of faith, putting your faith in God's grace. But it isn't your faith that saves you. No, it's God's grace that saves you. Well, that's why Jesus came, to provide a way of escape for us, to provide a new righteous robe, to provide a net, as it were. All you can do is put your faith in what Christ has already provided for you and me through his death and his resurrection. Which brings us to the fourth picture that we see in this passage. 
And it's this, salvation is undeserved. Look at verse 23. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. In other words, we didn't do anything to earn our salvation. It is unmerited. It is undeserved. Paul writes, we are justified freely by his grace. Now, what does justified mean? Well, the word justified is a legal term that's used in a courtroom. It literally means to be declared not guilty. It means to be acquitted, to make right. It is the legal act of God declaring guilty people guiltless. It changes our standing with God. Now, justification is more than forgiveness. Justification means there is absolutely no longer any case against us. It's wiped out. You are in perfect standing before God. Not because of anything you did, but because of what God did through Christ. The fifth and final picture in, the, in this passage is this. Salvation comes to us through the sacrifice of Jesus. Salvation, though offered to us freely, is costly. It is costly because Jesus died to provide it for us. When Jesus died on the cross for you and me, he accomplished three very significant things. First of all, he justified or declared us not guilty by his grace, which we just looked at. Secondly, he provided us with redemption, which we also see here in verse 23, and I want to read it again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So what does redemption mean? Redemption means to release, to free by paying a ransom. In Paul's day, you could go and buy slaves anywhere in Rome. Over half the population in Rome were slaves. In the ancient world, if someone had a serious debt, they were often forced to sell themselves or even their children in order to pay off the debt. People would buy slaves the way that we buy cars or toys these days, and they would do whatever they wanted with them. The slaves had no rights at all. It was terrible. Now, suppose that you're standing in the marketplace offering yourself as a slave. Someone comes along and asks, how much money do you owe? And you respond, I owe a million dollars. Now, suppose this individual pulls out his checkbook, writes a check for a million dollars, and buys you as his slave. But then instead of keeping you as his slave, he lets you go free. Can you imagine the shock and the gratitude that would well up inside of you toward that individual? Well, in the spiritual realm, that is what Jesus did for you and me. 
He paid for our redemption, the ransom price that was on our head, setting us free, and please get this, setting us free from the power of sin over us, setting us free from the guilt associated with our sin. And church, this is true freedom. In John 8, 36, Jesus said, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And so we see here in verse 23 that Jesus justified us by his grace, declaring us guiltless in our standing before God, and he also redeemed us. He paid the ransom price that was on our head, setting us free from the power of sin and the guilt associated with sin. And then thirdly, he atoned for our sins. Look at verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The word atonement means satisfied. You see, in Ezekiel 18.4, we read this, the one who sins is the one who will die. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. Now, immediately, you know, we wonder, well, isn't this a bit overkill for most sins? I mean, I can see death being appropriate for murder or some of the other heinous sins that people commit. But death for stealing? Death for lying, for slander, or gossip? Now, I really don't have an answer for that except to say that let's not forget he's God and we're not. He sees things that we don't see. We may think that, you know, it's just a little lie. But you see, God, from his perspective, he sees how that lie triggered a chain of events that resulted in a major tragedy. We may think that our slanderous gospel, a gossip is no big deal, but God sees how the assassination of another person's character impacted the entire trajectory of their life and perhaps even their eternity. Only he knows the total fallout of our sins, however great or small they may be, and therefore only he is worthy to decide what the penalty for sin should be, and he has ordained that the penalty for sin, all sin, is death. And so here's the thing. Since we've all sinned, we all face death, eternal separation from God. We fall under his wrath, and there is absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves. Now, just pause for a moment. And let this truth sink in because we will never understand or appreciate what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross if we don't realize our hopeless condition and our need for a Savior first. You see, God is just. He can't just look at our sins and say, forget it, it's no big deal. No, he cannot and he will not contradict his character. 
He treats us according to his justice. And if he does that, it's all over. We're done. We have no hope. But God is also merciful. And therein is the dilemma. Justice, by definition, is giving people what they deserve. Mercy, by definition, is not giving people what they deserve. So how can a just God judge our sin and yet extend his mercy and forgive us at the same time? Well, friends, that is why Jesus had to come. That is why Jesus had to die on the cross. If you've wondered about what the purpose of the cross is, here it is. Jesus' death on the cross satisfied, atoned for the justice and the wrath of God and made a way, the only way I might add, for God's mercy to be extended to us as well by dying in our place and paying the price that was on our heads with his own blood, something that we are incapable of doing ourselves. Christ became the lamb that was slain and he took God's wrath upon himself. Just meditate on that reality for a moment. You know, there are times when we face circumstances in life where it just seems that God isn't making any sense or it just seems like he's a million miles away that he doesn't care. But when I think about what God the Son did for me on the cross, when I think of Jesus voluntarily coming to earth as a man and ultimately taking my place on the cross to pay for my sins and all of our sins, when I think of him taking the wrath of God that was directed at my sins and him taking it Upon himself, I can no longer question his love for me or his goodness. Dr. R.C. Spruill once said, Confucius never died for anybody. Muhammad never did anything to satisfy the wrath of God. Jesus, on the other hand, out of love for us, is the one who paid the ultimate price to satisfy the wrath of God. You see, when we rejected God, when, or rebelled against God, when we decided to worship the temporary things that God created rather than God himself, when we defiantly told God that we're going to do what we want to do, in other words, when we were deserving of God's wrath and judgment, God chose to punish himself, to be the sacrifice, to pay for our sins, to pour out his wrath on himself so that he might be able to offer us his righteousness as a gift of his grace. And when I realized my inability to save myself and reached out to him in faith, in the spiritual realm, a miracle happened. My sin was transferred to Christ's account. And Christ's perfect righteousness was transferred to my account. 
that is what atonement is all about. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, referring to Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took all the sin of the world, past, present, and future. He put it on Christ. And can you imagine the horror of that? Every murder that's ever been committed, every abuse, every despicable sin ever committed being placed on him. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took our condemnation. He is our substitute. And here's the good news. God the Father looked at the blood of the Lamb slain on the cross and he was satisfied. His justice had been satisfied. His wrath had been satisfied. And friend, if you cling to Christ and Christ alone is your Savior, God sees the blood of Jesus covering your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ on you. And he is satisfied. And we, in turn, are set free in Christ. Romans 8.1 Paul writes there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus no condemnation what an incredible gift of God through Jesus Christ amen would you please bow your heads and close your eyes Just take a moment to ask those two questions right now. Lord, what are you saying to me through this teaching from your word? Lord, what are you asking me to do? I want to address three categories of people very quickly. First of all, I want to address those who have never embraced the forgiveness of Jesus and the freedom that he offers us. There are two things you need to do to be forgiven, to be set free in Christ. First of all, you need to confess. To confess means to acknowledge something. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To confess means to acknowledge your sin. It's to acknowledge. It's to take responsibility for them and to repent of them. And to repent means to change your mind. It means to turn around and go the opposite way. Secondly, you need to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You need to confess your sins, but you also need to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Confessing Jesus is embracing him by faith as your Lord and Savior, inviting him into your life to take control and following him as Lord. If you're ready to say yes, to begin a friendship with Jesus, I'm going to invite you to join me in a prayer in just a moment. I also want to address a second group of people, those of you who believe in God and perhaps even prayed a prayer somewhere in your past to embrace Christ as your Savior. But you've never really understood what Jesus did for you until now. And consequently, you never really had the assurance that you're actually forgiven, that you're actually set free in Christ. And that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, today you understand what Jesus accomplished and you're ready to say yes with a new assurance. I'm going to give you the opportunity to join me in a prayer in just a moment. And finally, I just want to address a third group of people who believe in God, but you've wandered away. Perhaps you prayed a prayer years ago, but your heart and the direction of your life never really changed, and you know it. You know that you're still the center of your life. You're still very much in control. But today you've come to realize in a new way not only what Christ did for you, but the time has come for you to stop playing games with him. You realize in a whole new way that you are still under the wrath of God and you need Jesus and you want to make a fresh start by surrendering your life to him and following him as Lord. Well, if you just sense God prompting you right now, I want to invite you to join me in praying this prayer. Heavenly Father, I realize I can never measure up to your perfect righteousness. I realize the only way I can is by your grace and your mercy. Forgive me for thinking I could be good enough. Thank you for being my substitute. Thank you for taking upon yourself the wrath of God that was directed at my sins. I acknowledge that I have sinned and I ask that you forgive me of my sins and regrets. Lord, come into my life. Make me clean. Make me a new creation in you. Fill me with yourself and guide me and empower me to be the person you created me to be. For I pray it in Jesus' precious name. Now, as prayer partners are making their way up here, I'm going to invite those of you who prayed that prayer just to come up here before you head home and just tell them of your decision so they can pray with you before you go and maybe also try to answer questions that you may still have. If you're online and you prayed yes, if you said yes to Jesus, then please text yes to our church text line at the number on the screen in front of you, 403 293-3900 or let one of our online pastors know of your decision through the chat line. 